It's great to see you guys. It's the second week in a row where the testimony has directly paralleled the message. If you don't believe God speaks, and there's like, no one's reading my notes, I tell you that. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to see, and um, I'm excited to share with you tonight. Last week, talked about identity and about performance-based identity, rejecting the performance-based identity that is rooted in us from our earliest inclinations with Jesus. We talked about how Jesus, before he did one miracle, before he raised one person from the dead, before he preached one sermon, the Father was pleased with him. And God is pleased with you, not because of anything you do, but because of who you are. And it begs the question, like, well, how can that be? How can God be pleased with me before I've done anything? And the answer is simple. And that's going to be talking about tonight. Because identity is so important. Identity is what is going to determine what you do, where you go, who you become. And when you change what you think about yourself, you'll change everything. For from identity flows behavior. Let me tell you something that every single victory in my life, every victory, every temptation, every sin flows from this truth tonight. This is one of the most faith-stretching topics and exercises I've ever encountered. And if you like content of tonight's nature, there's an author by the name of Paul Ellis, and he writes books, and, and he's got one book just centered around identity. And his name is Paul Ellis, and I'd love to refer you to some of his work. So anyways, that's what's tonight. So from someone who used to think that you could lose your salvation, I have set the world record for a number of sinner's prayers. I'm positive. I used to think that no matter what I did wrong, it invalidated my salvation. And so I had this enormous performance-based identity just hovering over me. And my identity was only as good as my most recent behavior. And then Jesus, to make things worse, when you have someone who thinks that your performance gets you into heaven, that keeps your right standing with God, and that you're continually losing your salvation and continually regaining it, Jesus has to say this, Matthew 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Terrifying. How do you know the Bible can be quoted by the devil? The devil used a passage like this to keep me trapped on this treadmill of performance-based identity, trying to continue to re-earn my salvation, re-earn my righteousness. Okay, God, okay, if I connect last week that God's pleased with me, okay, God's not angry with me, right? But I still have to earn my righteousness. I have to earn my way in heaven. I have to perform my way. And here's what righteousness means as I looked it up. It means this right standing, Free from guilt, morally right or justifiable, acting in accordance with divine or moral law is what righteous means. Righteousness is actually the, de the determining attribute, as Jesus said, about getting into heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses the laws and the Pharisees. And those are the guys who were like, they were so holy, they like glued the Bible on their forehead. So they'd never forget, Right? Unless you're right, it says that they're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses those guys, all the weird people you're terrified of, unless you're more holy than them, you're not going to get into heaven. And, and Jesus says the righteousness is what determines it. You ask most Christians, do you feel righteous? No way, man. Did you see what I did yesterday? No. 
And the topic of righteousness that, that righteousness dwells in Christians is a big problem because we think it's the Jesus card that gets us into heaven sometimes, right? I got my no fuego for me card in heaven. I got Jesus. I'm forgiven. It's actually not forgiven of unrighteousness, but it's actually righteousness that gets you into heaven. And so our minds immediately go into, I have to create righteousness for myself. I have to behave righteous. I have to be there. I have to embody righteousness. But Philippians 3.9, if there's a passage you can memorize, I love scripture memorization in my phase of life now, is this one. It says, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not having of my own, laying it out there, I got none. It says, you are the righteousness of Christ. Let me pause for a second. Just let that sink in. You are the righteousness of Christ. I didn't do anything. How does this work? When you have Christ, you have righteousness. And righteousness is your identity. And so Jesus' words now make sense when we think about it. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you're not entering heaven. And then we realize that we have the righteousness of Christ. How many know that Christ's righteousness is greater than the laws of the Pharisees and the rulers? And if you can grasp and live this truth that you are the righteousness of God, your entire life will change. Well, that doesn't make sense, man. Because, like, I'm a Christian and I sinned, like, five minutes ago. How does this work? Works this way. Because righteousness is not behavior. It's your status. Righteousness is not behavior. It is your status. If you like things that rhyme, check this out. Righteousness is not something you attain. Righteousness is something you became. That needs to make it in the next Kennedy Rose album. <laughs> Righteousness is not something you attain. It is something you became. We need to disassociate righteousness as being this behavior-based result. Instead, it becomes a status. 2,000 years ago, it's like your Facebook says, righteous. Forever. Not changing. Your status in Christ became righteous. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord. But I don't feel righteous. Well, it's a good thing we're called believers and not feelers. If you don't feel righteous, that's good because you're called to be a believer, not a feeler. It doesn't matter what your feelings say. It's what the word says. It's what Christ says. You want to argue with Jesus? Never worked out well in the Bible. And it's not any ordinary righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. And the key word there says, by faith, meaning your righteousness is separate from your actions and behavior. A righteousness from faith, separated from anything you do. Like breaks my mind. Your righteousness is founded on what you believed, not how you behaved. 
Your righteousness is based on what you believed, not on how you behaved. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. you got to love the math of the new covenant. I was terrible at math, by the way. How many sins did Jesus commit before going to the cross? How many righteous acts did you do before you were made righteous? Zero. God did it all. Got to love that math. The reason the gospel was so outrageous, the reason the gospel was so outrageous is because thousands of years you had righteousness determined by what you ate, what you wore, what you said. Did you urinate on yourself? Like all these crazy things. And suddenly, Jesus comes and says, if you simply believe, you're righteous. People are like, I'm going to get my knife. I'm coming for you. People have this major freak out. But we're used to it. We're like, oh yeah, Jesus, it's cool, righteous, whatever, man. And we really understand what it meant for Christ to bestow his righteousness upon us just simply by believing and not doing was the most mind-blowing thing that had ever happened in the entire world. And every single day we should just be like, I can't believe it. But I don't deserve it, man. I don't deserve it. Like, okay, like, it says I'm righteous, but I don't deserve it. Well, that's why it's called a gift. That's why it's called a gift. A gift is not a gift if it was deserved. Some of you guys have a hard time receiving gifts. You probably have a hard time receiving your salvation, too. It's not a gift if someone can pay it back. I'm a terrible gift receiver. Some people know that in this room. Like, no, I got to pay you back. And that's why I've struggled so long with my salvation. I want to earn it back. Like, God, you saved me. That's amazing. But man, I got to like do something for you. Let me like give you back rub or something. Like, help me out. I can't just have it all be receiving. Like, I can't stand anybody who pays for, like, my lunch. Like, we, like, wrestle for it. Like, I don't want to owe you anything. But the gift of salvation is so simple. Because Jesus says that the gospel is supposed to be at the level of a child, okay? We're not supposed to be able to have these, like, the commentaries that we have on the things that Jesus says, it's, like, absurd. And Jesus like, it's meant for the children, The gift of salvation is so simple, we miss it. We have to overcomplicate it. We have to completely miss it. And a child knows, any child, especially my four-year-old, Fred's got five kids, I can't even imagine that. But even he would tell you that a child knows you can do one of two things with a gift. You can receive it or reject it. There's only two options. It's had Christmas, our little four-year-old, She's totally into uh, Little Mermaid right now. She's into all princesses. In fact, we're going to Disney on Ice this weekend. Here we go. You give her, like, a sweater that's not pink. It's like, whatever. We got her Ariel, Little Mermaid, in her wedding gown with a little miniature Prince Eric. And she, like, lost her mind. 
It was like the ultimate toy. To this day, it's still, and it has like this like veil on Ariel that comes off all the time and it has to be fixed. It's like this like never anything, but she just like adores it. But here's the thing, this, the best gift arguably of her life, you know what she didn't do? She didn't feel guilty about it. She didn't try to like pay me back. She didn't go pick up a rake, go in the backyard, start picking up some leaves. She embraced it. She loved it. And she was all about it. And one thing you must never do with a gift is insult the giver by trying to pay it back. I'd be so heartbroken if my daughter, after giving her a gift, came back and was like, all right, I'm 45, 50, 50. Like, no. It invalidates the gift if you can actually repay me. And, and Christ wants you to receive salvation, to receive righteousness with such this, like, it's so overwhelming, I have no other response but to receive. I can't to do anything. It's so good. You're so marvelous and so wonderful. I can't do anything but just to say yes. And I enjoy and I receive it. Look at how Paul describes the Israelites, and this is in Romans 10, says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is, is not based on knowledge, since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That word submit means to like come underneath. Think of like a waterfall. It's like this, like a waterfall that's going, and, and to submit to God's righteousness is to like, fall underneath the waterfall. It's not to bow down and obey, but it's to come underneath. It says the Israelites, they want to, with their behavior, earn and deserve the righteousness instead of coming underneath and being overflown with it. It says don't try to create your own righteousness. Self-justification will require all your time of your entire life and none of your time living a transformed life that transforms the world. If you sign up for self-justification, you'll spend your entire life not being good enough and your entire life missing every opportunity to change the world. Because the world doesn't need Christians who feel really guilty about what they did. They need Christians who say, holy cow, let me tell you what Christ did to me. Let me tell you how I've been set free and completely transformed. But wait, how is it possible that I'm righteous? I mean, God saved a wretch like me. Amazing, right? We all say, wretch like me, you know. I'm going to one day write a book just on all the damaging worship songs that we've sang. If you're like in church, you're like, this is bad theology, you know, singing. <laughs> We're so used to, sing, like, we have all this weird theology because we've sang it for so long. For so long, we've sung these songs. And, and here's the thing is, like, that's who we were. Like, Christ saved us. So, like, let's, like, not keep talking about the wretch we were. That's not who we are anymore. It's like, well, how is it possible I'm righteous? This one detail is that you are righteous because your old self is dead. This wasn't extreme makeover sinner edition. Your old self is dead. 
gone, kaput. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, one of my favorite passages says, therefore in in Christ is a new creation. New creation. That literally means never seen before, brand new, completely unique, one of a kind. Not just slightly improved, not sucking less, any of that stuff. Brand new creation. And this is what catches us when we get saved is that we think we can rehabilitate the old man, the old self. We think, ah, he just needs, he's a good guy. He just needs a little love, a little help, a little discipleship, a little self-control, a little smacker on the face, get in gear. And we've completely lost fact that the old self died, crucified, buried with Christ. Died, buried, crucified with Christ. Paul the Roman says that we know that our old self was crucified, Romans 6.6. 6. And it's all, and you notice it's was, past tense. Everything you ever did, ever will do, was taken care of 2,000 years ago. On the cross, was, past tense. And this is all over the New Testament. To the Colossians, it said, you died with Christ. To the Romans, it says, we died with Christ. To the Corinthians, it says, we all died. It's all consistent. The death of your old self is just as significant as your present righteousness. We're talking about you are the righteousness of of God, but you need to remember continually that your old self is gone. Your old self is dead. And the baptism into his death is just about the most important thing that has ever happened to you, yet many Christians are ignorant of it. Ephesians 4 says, And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, having been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's who you are. That is you. Can you believe it? I don't know how we missed this on the brochure. Like, this is what came when we received Christ. But many Christians, they have no idea that the old self is dead. And in fact, even worse, they're trying to revive the old man. So last week that Kate was talking about how she had like a great term for it. We're like, ooh, what's that term? And she's like, what is it? I can't pronounce that word. It's too smart for me. Necro. And I'm moving on. So, (laughs) Necromancing. Thank you. I like the visuals. Necromancing. I got that. Necromancing. That really worked. Thank you. I know. Speech therapist apparently maybe helping me out. Um, talking to the dead. We're like, that's weird. My old self. <sighs> Trying to rehabilitate something that is dead, buried and crucified with Christ. The old man is unfixable. The old man is unfixable. The old self. So blew it. So inferior. It's like, we're not going to save anything here. Not even a tiny bit. It's not improving. It's not getting better. It's just we're going to start over. That's who you were. But lots of Christian ministries are trying to rehabilitate and repair the old man. So many Christian ministries are trying to get your old self to just suck a little bit less and be a little bit better. And you'll spend 
Your entire life, if you're in that mindset of I need to repair the old self instead of living as the new self, you'll spend your entire life trying to die, dying to self, dying daily, crucifying the flesh. And we need to stop trying to reform the old man because he's dead and gone. We don't need more tools to help us build willpower. My greatest challenges and my periods of greatest struggle is like, it's a willpower thing. Oh, get angry about it. Willpower. We don't need tools that teach willpower. We need tools that build faith that remind us that we're righteous. We could probably lose the majority of Christian ministries and they just focus on your transform. You're nothing like who you were. You don't have to do anything. You're totally victorious. Learn to walk in victory. Don't try to maintain this old self and make him a little bit better. Because it takes no faith to live with guilt and shame. It takes zero faith to feel guilt and shame. It takes faith to live and believe that you're righteous. That's a demonstration of faith. Oh, you feel bad for yourself? Oh, it must be so hard for you. Congratulations. You want to impress me? Stare straight in my eyes after your greatest failure and say, but I'm righteous, I'm forgiven, and I stand back up. That impresses me. That says, like, someone got through, you've been transformed, and the rest of your victory is at hand. When you can rebound from your greatest failure and say, Christ is in me, and because of what he did, I confess that I messed up, but just because I messed up doesn't mean I'm in fear because I have the righteousness of Christ. People say, oh, that's arrogance. No, it's called intelligence. Some people have a hard time with this topic because they think it's like, ooh, you know, it's all about you. No, it's, it's, it's I'm preaching the Bible, am I not? This is the intelligence that you are the righteousness of God. I know what I am. God didn't save me to make me just kind of sin a little bit less. He saved me to transform me and in the process to look like him. But isn't following Jesus a matter of dying daily to ourselves, our desires and our hopes? Isn't, isn't following Christ like dying to self and like sacrifice and oh, isn't that what it is? Nope. Actually, the, the phrase die to self isn't even in the Bible. You know that? Dying to self isn't even in the Bible. People got it wrong. People get scripture wrong all the time. They're, they're misquoting Matthew 16, 14, which says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is just talking about salvation. Anyone should come after me? He must deny himself, saying, I can't be righteous to get into heaven. I deny my ability. I take up the cross because it's the cross which makes me righteous and brings me into heaven and gives me salvation. Because your trying will not get you to heaven. Only the cross will. Jesus is saying, don't even try it. Follow me. Look to the cross. Now, you can keep denying yourself and keep sinning your sinner's prayer every single day, but it's not going to change anything about you. In fact, it's going to make your life worse because it made mine worse. I had this obsession of dying to self. And here's what I was doing in the process. I was killing the new man too. And our pursuit 
to die to self, and we forget that the old man died past tense. And we keep trying to die to self, we end up unintentionally killing the new man too, at least keeping him down. The old man was crucified on the cross, but your new man's supposed to live. And there actually is a transformed man, a new person, a new entity that's in you, living inside you, trying to live out, trying to become free. Jesus died once, never going to die again, right? And the same is with you, that you were crucified once, and we never need to be crucified again. You don't need to die daily. Once will do the trick, I promise you. And the new self was made righteous. Well... What's the harm in self-denial? I mean, denying to self, it sounds noble. Denying self, death to self, all those things. It sounds like I'm really holy. Now, if you're convinced that you need to die daily, you will suppress yourself into a life that is so depressing, so self-deprecating, that you'll never experience life abundantly. I've come to give you life and life more abundantly, not more depressingly. I didn't come to make you feel guilty and depressed. I came to set you free. But ultimately, self-denial, which you think you're trying to accomplish with all this self-denial, it leads to a really ironic thing. Self-denial leads to self-glorification. You focus on yourself, focus on yourself. I'm not going to do that. It leads to self-glorification. Any message any teaching, even when it sounds noble on self-denial, actually promotes self. It fuels self-centeredness in your victory. It takes your challenge, your temptation, your struggle, and puts it on you, not Christ. The religion of monks and others say that you can attain spiritual goals by abstaining from pleasures, right? Try harder, increase your game, follow these 10 steps, go into isolationism, have a shock collar. I've heard it all. Do all these things and maybe you'll reach your goal. Now, I'm not against, I'm not trying to say that abstinence or even self-discipline is a bad thing. I'm just, I'm just pro-victory in Christ. When people make it all about their willpower, all about, I can't do this, I'm, I'm tormented by this, it completely neglects what Christ has done because when Christ came on the cross, every sin, every struggle, every temptation was one. You've been in a jail cell and Christ opened all the doors, threw away all the keys, the doors are open, and you, won't ref and you refuse to leave the jail cell. It's like all you need to do is just walk out. And every victory that you have before you is a matter of not fighting to get out of the jail cell. And someone come rescue me, I'm trapped. It's just... Walk out of the jail. The victory is already won. And the church has this unhealthy obsession with sin when they should have an obsession with Christ's victory. If we took every teaching, every ministry, every program that focused on you need to do, and we just said, Christ already did it. Learn to walk in what Christ already did. We'd have radically different lives. There's so many things I want to share with you. You guys doing okay so far? Here's one challenge I had. Feeling like I never had peace with God. 
Never had peace. Mess up, boop. Let's just not talk about it. It's awkward right now. Feeling like my relationship with God was always in limbo, was always kind of awkward. Never had peace. That Romans 5 verse, I'm going to quote it a little bit deeper now. It says, having been declared righteousness, having been declared righteous then by faith, we have peace toward God. See that? Righteousness, which you received once for all time, is what establishes peace with God. It's impossible for you not to have peace with God. There's no such thing as you not having peace with God because peace with God is established by righteousness and you were declared righteous. Why don't people have peace in their relationship with God? It's because they're ignorant of him and his righteousness. If you're more conscious of your sin than his righteousness, you will never enjoy peace with God because you're still focused on yourself. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Yeah. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness first. Not seek your repentance first, feel sorry, go volunteer, tithe, sit in the front row of church and stay a long time, and then you'll feel better. Seek first his righteousness. It means that when you stumble, don't seek anything else before you seek first the righteousness of Christ. Your response to your failure should be, man, what I did, but man, what he did. Should be to seek Christ's righteousness. Should be your very first thought. He did it. He doesn't say seek his righteousness second, third, fourth, later. It says, seek his righteousness first. His righteousness is your righteousness. So if you're focusing on sin, you're not focusing on his righteousness first. Here's something that Christ revealed to me. is like, I keep sinning because I keep thinking of sin. I keep sinning because I keep thinking of sin. It's like setting a burrito. I love burritos. Amen. Anybody get that free Chipotle burrito this past week? Yes. And I set a burrito here, and I stare at it, and I'm like, don't eat the burrito, don't eat the burrito, don't eat the burrito, don't eat the burrito. I'm going to eat the burrito in about five seconds. The more you concentrate on what not to do, the more you crave it. I could tell my daughter, I could plant a brand new idea in her mind and say, don't do cartwheels upside down while singing Little Mermaid song. And she'll like, I got to do it. <laughs> you didn't even know what this existed until two seconds ago. And when we stop thinking of our sin, when we stop identifying that we're these sinners saved by grace, when we start thinking of his righteousness, suddenly it's like, I don't feel like sinning anymore. I haven't even thought about it. I'm going to end with this. Still don't feel righteous? Check this out. At the end of your life, you enter the kingdom, you receive eternal life, you receive rewards, and then the Father praises you. Let's get our heads around that. The Father's going to praise you. You think you're going to go up there and it's going to be like, oh, I mean, yes, but... The Father praises you at the judgment. Crazy. You get that. That's your inheritance. And a whole bunch of other awesome things I don't even pretend to understand yet. 
You know what Christ gets for being the son, going down to earth, dying on the cross? You know what Christ gets? You. You. The saints. You're what Christ gets. Now that might be like really depressing to you. (laughs) Me? Yeah. You. You are that important. Your life is that significant. You are that righteous that Christ says, I I don't need anything else. I just want her. I want him. Need me to prove it? I will. Ephesians 1.18. says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inheritance in the saints. He's saying, I I pray that your eyes would be enlightened, that your heart would know that you are the inheritance of Christ, that Christ gets you. You and your life is the prize. Your life is so valuable that Christ says, I want you. I don't need anything else. At the end of this world, I'm satisfied with you. And here's how this single-handedly brought me victory. It's where this old self and new self, right? And the one that you align with determines your victory. Am I going to align with the old self that's been crucified? Am I going to align with the new self, which is righteous? Are you a sinner saved by grace, or are you a royal priesthood? Second Peter calls you a holy priesthood. Revelation says we're a kingdom of priests. Now, sinner saved by grace looks at temptation and gives in. I'm a sinner. That's what sinners do. They sin. Just follow my job description. Sinner saved by grace sins and needs to be saved by grace again. That's not what the Bible tells you or describes you. But for me, as I say, I'm a sinner saved by grace my entire life. I found myself continually sinning because that's what I expected out of my identity. I can't help it. And all these different rationales begin to like playing. It's natural. Every guy does it. I can't help it. I have no control. It's no big deal. We rationalize all these things according to the old man because I'm a sinner saved by grace. The righteousness of God, the new man says, I'm a royal priest. I'm a saint. And I begin to ask myself, would a priest and a saint walk into that movie that I know has got a scene that my flesh wants to see? Would a priest, would a saint walk in to that movie? Would he turn on that channel? Would he play that video? Would a priest do that? I don't think so. How messed up would your mind be if you're like having lunch with a pope? Or does a little glass of wine, you think he's going to do communion? Takes the bottle. It's like, I just hope I don't black out today. You're like... This isn't like you. This is like totally baffling to me. The Pope doesn't do that. It's the same way God revealed for me in my struggle. He's like, a priest doesn't do that. A saint doesn't do that. It's completely unnatural. It's completely foreign. That's not who you are. Now, you can do that if you want. I've given you free choice. But that's completely abnormal behavior for a priest and a saint. 
It's completely outside of what you're designed to do. And when I realize it's Romans 6.14 that you shall have no master over you, have no master, really, Christ? No master, no master. But without sin, you're dead to sin. But I feel so guilty. You're the righteousness of Christ. Every explanation I wanted to have to justify my decisions in my life, Christ came back and reminded me about how it's abnormal from who he made me and unusual and I'm completely victorious and have no master. And when basically, it's like, it's a choice. Every sin that's before you that you've been struggling with is a choice. You have a say. It's like, I didn't think I had a say. You do. What are you going to do with it now? Let me walk, welcome the band up. We're going to close with this. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with an issue, if you have a mindset that keeps on trying to say willpower, that says discipline, that says deny self, have a response tonight. Make a decision in your life tonight to say, I need to work this truth into my life. I don't care if I need to write it on my mirror or tattoo. Wait, let's go with a different idea. Or have your ringtone say something, your screen lock, if you can grab hold that I'm not in the business of transforming the old man. My life is to live as the new. And continually affirm that I'm the righteousness of God. I'm worthy of Christ going to the cross for me so that he would get me in heaven. Make a decision in your heart tonight. If you live with this central truth in your life, I promise you radical, radical victory in your life ahead. I love you guys.